Hello, and welcome to In Her Room, women writers on life, craft, and changing the world. I'm your host, Sarah Blackthorne. In Her Room is supported by listeners like you. Contribute to keeping the show ad-free at patreon.com slash inherroom, or visit our website to make a one-time donation. Your support keeps women's voices on the air. This week's guest on In Her Room is Joy Castro. From her childhood in a family of Jehovah's Witnesses to teaching creative writing at workshops across the country, Joy Castro is wise, humble, and incredibly kind. The author of memoir, crime novels, and short fiction, her latest collection of stories, How Winter Began, comes out October 1st from University of Nebraska Press. Joy, it is so great to have you on the show today. Thank you for being here. Well, thank you. I'm really excited to have you on the show. Um, It was such a treat to meet you at AWP this year and um, to connect over writing and words and storytelling and to find commonality that um, I think is helpful when we're writers to to not be quite so alone in that room uh, as we're sitting down to the page. Um, so I'd love to start by asking you, what is writing to you? Um, I guess I would say that writing is a tool or technology for discovery and exploration. Um, it's, a, it's a medium, the way paint is a medium or clay is a medium, or for someone more mechanically inclined, maybe the way little metal pieces are a medium for for building something and exploring the possibilities of that medium. Um, It's the process of writing. Uh, It's a gift. It's It's a gift and it's a way of understanding experience, a way of understanding the world, or at least asking questions about experience and the world that make experience more bearable or more comprehensible or more beautiful. You have written in um, a couple of different genres. You have written uh, two memoirs, two creative nonfiction books, as well as edited a um, collection of work about writing on family. And you've also written two novels and have a collection of short fiction coming out in October. What is it like for you to write in both of these worlds, this nonfiction, personal narrative world, as well as this world of your creation in this um, in your two fiction novels? Um, well, it's fun. It's, it's really fun. Um, the nonfiction work or the memoir work uh, feels to me like a fairly serious literary endeavor um, in which I get to ask questions about the boundaries of nonfiction and the content and the form, the shape of nonfiction, what we can write about, uh, especially in editing that collection, Family Trouble, you know, how, what, are the, what are the limits of 
what we can write about regarding our family members. What can we disclose? What are we ethically obliged to conceal, if anything? Um, and so that's very interesting because I think that's a question that crops up for many writers who work in that genre. Um, and so it feels like a sort of valuable foray into uh, an area uh, of craft regarding nonfiction and memoir specifically that has been a little bit underexplored, even though there's a lot of energy uh, around it for, for most writers. And then um, writing fiction has been a blast. I write literary crime thrillers, and I always loved reading mysteries and thrillers as a kid, as a, an adolescent, as a college student. Well, not so much as a college student, but then in grad school, I would read mysteries and thrillers um, on breaks uh, to, to sort of unwind. Mm. So, I've, so I've always really loved reading mysteries. I think they're fantastically escapist and thrilling but they also engage very serious questions of justice and equality and the production of criminality, you know, so social justice, sometimes environmental justice, and some, so some of the big picture issues that I'm very interested in as a scholar and as a citizen. So being able to do a lot of research uh, around issues relating to post-Katrina New Orleans, which is where the two crime thrillers are set, and then incorporating that in a way that would be entertaining for people, I hope, you know, that's the goal, um, uh, has been really a joy. I, you can only, I think you can only really write so much memoir. Um, if you're lucky, wild, dramatic things uh, give you a break once in a while, and you have some spates of calm in your life. Mm -hmm. But you don't want to stop writing. And so for me, um, being able to write in a genre that has been so pleasurable to me and gives so many people pleasure has been uh, really wonderful. I would say that the other interesting thing about writing in those two genres is that one is fairly lucrative and one is not. Um, so the, the um, crime thrillers uh, have been more commercially successful. Mm. And the um, the the literary nonfiction, so it's kind. Of, I like traveling in both worlds. I think it's fun to have a foot in each. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned um, your two novels, which are uh, Hell or High Water and Nearer Home, and both of which are set in New Orleans, um, which, and not just any New Orleans, but post Katrina New Orleans. Yes, and I'm. I know that you have a personal connection to the city, um, and I'm curious how you came to the story that you decided to write in your main character and in the work that she's doing in the city, um, and where that really uh, comes from for you. Sure. Well, the main character of both novels is a young Latina journalist. Um, her name is Nola. Nola Cespedes, she's named by her mother after the acronym uh, for New Orleans. And in the first book, she gets assigned to a story that's rooted in fact. Uh, it's the story of the hundreds and hundreds 
of registered sex offenders who availed themselves of the opportunity of the mandated evacuation during Katrina to disappear, to sort of melt back into society um, and, uh, you know, uh, elude the registry. Uh, she gets assigned to this story, and um, as a young and somewhat reckless journalist, she takes some risks that she shouldn't take in, in tracking down some of the sex offenders. And it was, it was really fascinating to write. I think we're overzealous in our culture about who gets put on those registries, and we need a more nuanced approach to that. And yet, on the other hand, they're a very valuable tool um, regarding the, the, the truly dangerous sexual offenders who are you know, back out on the street, or potentially dangerous, I mean to say. Um, and, uh, you know, but, but, but abuses happen. And uh, in some ways, uh, people's civil rights are abridged uh, by, by um, some of the practices that we've engaged regarding the sex offender registries. So I'm looking at sexual trauma and its long aftermath in the, in the lives of um, survivors. And then also the, the natural devastation and the civic devastation of an event like Hurricane Katrina and its long aftermath in the lives of the people who experienced it and survived it. I'm not one of those people. Um, my husband uh, uh, grew up on the North Shore of Lake Pontchartrain and his family did evacuate uh, during Katrina. So we've been married 20 years uh, together for longer and I have been going there um, to New Orleans uh, regularly and for long periods during that time. Um, so I write about New Orleans as an outsider with a lot of respect and a lot of affection and a, a lot of curiosity. I loved being able to do the research on the ground, the historical research. Um, and I've gotten uh, postcards and emails from people who uh, actually have read the book and then go to New Orleans and go to all the different restaurants and so on. <laughs> in the book yeah and the, and the nightclubs and the bookstores I mentioned bookstores so it's kind of a fun way to to give back to a city that has been so amazing in my own life mm. when we met I had a moment of um spontaneous mental connection because I had read um your first memoir the truth book sometime uh, shortly after it was published. And before I went to New Orleans for the first time a year ago, I uh, read your first in the novel series, Hell or High Water, and did not realize that you were the same person. <laughs> <laughs> that's hilarious. I think that's really cool. And and I, and I, I just remember this thought of like, oh my goodness, this is... This is so this is so fantastic because I really um really loved your first memoir and then to read this novel and fall in love with the city all over again um to find out that that you were the same person was terribly exciting to me. <laughs> I think that's really fun. I wonder if it has to do with voice. I worked really hard to create a 
very different voice for Nola from my own um, nonfiction voice, uh, which feels more like my my voice. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, like like uh, the the voice in the two novels is really deadpan and hard boiled, and I, at least I tried. I tried to make it clipped and terse and different from the kind of um, longer lines and lyrical lusher language that I tend to use in uh, my own work. Oh, that crops out though in the novels. <laughs> it does. There's some, there's some bits, and certainly my agent worked really hard to trim those back mm. um, in the novel. So, but it was fun writing in that kind of um, uh, laconic. Not snarky. Nola's not snarky exactly, but she's certainly um, wry mm-hmm. all the time. Yeah, and I tend to be a little more earnest. So. <laughs> yeah. uh, I think that's amazing that you read both and didn't, you know. Put, that's cool. I think it's really cool. Yeah, I and I'm not sure if it was my own sort of a very rare moment of not investigating the author of what I'm reading. Um, I'm sure that if I had taken the time to do some Google foo, I would have like easily figured this out. Um, but I I approached the novel because um, I was looking for books about New Orleans. Yeah. As I was preparing to go there, and um, and read your memoir as myself, a creative nonfiction writer, a memoir writer. Um, and so I approached them from very different perspectives as well. Yeah, sure. I, I was just thinking that even though they're, they're fairly different projects, um, if someone were to ask what the links are, I would probably say that both projects, the, the nonfiction books and the novels, are very interested in the issue of trauma. Um, I find trauma fascinating trauma affects the way we think and the way we record memories and the way we perceive the world and someone who has not been traumatized uh, I think has a difficult time imagining what that what that world is like and so I think with both both projects I was interested in not just talking about trauma but also like enacting it or dramatizing what trauma does to a person's consciousness mm. um, and, and, and also talking about, about it although in the case of the novels uh, no, one part of Nola's trauma has to do with um, the sort of chronic stressor of growing up in poverty she grew up in urban poverty in the projects whereas my own experience with poverty is rural poverty so there's some interesting differences um but 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 poverty is one kind of slow trauma Mm. that affects people in different ways Uh, although that's not the only kind of trauma that I'm interested in when I write Mm -hmm. your presence on social media is very um both writing as well as um conversations about social justice Um, conversations about things that are happening and very relevant socially. And I'm 
curious how that interaction affects and interplays in your writing and also something we haven't touched on, which is um, that you are also a teacher of writing. You teach at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, um, and so you teach both graduate and undergraduate students. Um, and I'm curious how that sort of social interest and social justice comes into play. Yes, okay. Um, I think it was Chimamanda Adichie who spoke just this last week. It was a PEN uh, event, I think PEN World Voices. Mm -hmm. And she said something to the effect of, you know, just because I'm a writer, that doesn't mean I'm not also a citizen, right? Uh, or even if you weren't a, a, a citizen and, and with all the baggage that goes with citizenship and residence and so on, you're still a person experiencing the world politically. We all are, um, whether we articulate our thoughts about that or not. Um, and so uh, that just seems very natural to me. Um, or like Arundhati Roy uh, or other writers uh, for whom politics are an organically intertwined part of their literary life and endeavors. I, I just, I can't imagine really separating the two. Um, I think once... Once you grow up out of your own childhood and you realize that larger social forces uh, have had an impact on, on shaping everything you know, everything you've experienced, then uh, it just seems like a matter of course to engage those social forces and those issues analytically um, and publicly when it feels appropriate uh, to do so. I guess not... In, in one's work didactically, just because that's usually not successful. <laughs> um, you know, I'm, I get kind of didactic over a few drinks with my friends, um, <laughs> as they would be quick to tell you. Uh, um, uh, in, in literary work, you know, we, we pretty much know that that's not a very effective strategy. And it's not a very interesting strategy. Um, there's, there's plenty of bombast and didacticism in our public world in, in political discourse and, and I, you know that's just not an interesting way to make art um, but my political views infuse all of my art I just hope that they do so a little more subtly and in ways that engage the readers and invite the readers to ask questions and, and to disagree um, you know uh, rather than in ways that shut down dialogue or, or yeah, I don't have an end to that sentence. So. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, that's funny that you mentioned social media because sometimes I'm nervous about social media. I'll just like tweet something and think, oh, I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have said that publicly. <laughs> because in part because I am a professor, you know, um, and I think, oh, I should uphold some kind of standard of, <laughs> of mature professionalism. <laughs> and then I blow it all over again, like 24 hours later or something. Um, uh, but interestingly, the, the less filtered, less careful tweets are the ones that more people tend to engage with mm -hmm. and, and appreciate. Um, whereas when I tweet quite sober things about the state of higher ed, um, you know, that's, most people don't get too excited about that. Although 
I find it very exciting and very politically important um, what's happening in higher education now. Uh, tremendously important. And I think it's uh, having a huge effect on shaping the culture. But I'll leave that until we're having some drinks. Oh. But, Sounds uh, good. Yeah, yeah. But I am a professor. I do teach. Um, at the graduate level, I mostly teach creative writing, so fiction and nonfiction. And this is um, the, the reason that I don't teach um, my area of scholarly focus, which is modernism, is because I've moved away from being active in a scholarly sense for so long now that I'm just not really um, aware of the cutting edge scholarship in that field. It's moving so quickly and in such interesting ways that um, I think I've only taught one graduate seminar on transnational women's modernisms, uh, which I loved teaching, but I, but I did have the feeling that I was a couple of years out of date. And that was a few years ago. So if I tried to teach it now, I'd be really out of date. Mm. But, um, but that was, that was my focus when I did my um, master's and my doctorate. I did scholarly degrees and both of them were about modernism. Um, which I, I just love um, in terms of its experimentation with language and literature. Um, beautiful work, boundary-breaking work. But, um, and, then, and then you mentioned the undergraduate level. And at the undergraduate level, I do teach um, modernism, like, like 20th century novel, uh, and also Latino studies, an interdisciplinary course in Latino studies, U.S. Latino studies. And then um, I teach Latino literature, um, Chicano literature, um, and uh, women's literature at the undergraduate level. And I really love that. Mm. One of the themes that uh, runs through your work is uh, identity and and the ways that we carve out and... Um, also resonate with pieces of our identity. And you've written about uh, being adopted by a Cuban-American family. You've written about growing up in the Jehovah's Witnesses Church. And you've also written about um, life and identity, as you just spoke of, um, as a Latina woman, as a Chicana woman, and how that comes into your writing and your scholarly work. And I'm curious about identity and how how you create that sense in your work and in your own life well i think it's um i think that uh women's studies programs particularly now although although other areas of inquiry do this too talk about intersectionality and uh that's not a word that i knew growing up or even in college people weren't using that term yet at least not where i went to school and um, and I find it so helpful and clarifying to think about intersectionality in terms of identity because um, for me, the notion of fitting anywhere was always so very problematic. Um, you know, growing up um, in a Latino household, uh, but moving every couple of years, including living in England uh, for several years during early childhood, learning to write there, learning to talk there, having a British accent, but being a, a Latina, coming back to Miami, um, 
moving to rural West Virginia, I think there were like 0.03% Latinos in the population when we were there. It's not that much <laughs> today. And, um, and uh, my parents divorcing, both remarrying other people, obviously other people, or not obviously, I guess some people remarry their original part. Anyway, um, uh, and then living with, you know, poverty and violence and, you know, having people in my family go to prison and running away, ran away from home. And the whole church and gender identity being huge in that particular religion uh, because they have very strict gender roles, or they did when I was growing up. Mm. Uh, And questioning that, rejecting that, running away from that, and then trying to figure out what I was if if I wasn't those things. And then later... Uh, in my mid to late twenties, uh, slowly finding my birth mother and then my birth father and, uh, learning that what the lawyer had promised my parents, which was that I was also Latino and probably, probably, uh, Cuban. Uh, so I would be a good match for the family that that was not true. Uh, you know, and so, okay, so my ethnic identity, my cultural identity, what that's kind of gone, but it's mm-hmm. not, you know, mm-hmm. very confusing. And, and some other identities would be um, mothering. Uh, I had my son when I was 20, so that had a tremendous impact. And I kind of finished growing up while raising him. And uh, that was huge and transformative. And I would say, despite its difficulties, it was transformative in an extremely good way. Mm. Uh, and so putting all that together and with being a teacher and, uh, and now a new identity that's just happening this year uh, for me. I just finished my first year as a university administrator, which is really weird. Um, <laughs> not... <laughs> Not anything that I ever desired. It always looked sort of horrifying from the from the bleachers of, of being a faculty member. Uh, it always looked quite intimidating and strange and weird. People in higher ed call it the dark side, going mm-hmm. over the side. Um, and so I've been doing that for a year now, and it's been really challenging and interesting. You know, trying to mediate among multiple. Um, uh, I'm going to talk like an administrator among multiple stakeholders, right? Mm-hmm. Like students and your faculty and your staff, and then your senior administrators who are your bosses. And like, oh, it's really complicated, and you have to be very diplomatic and uh, very thoughtful. So it's been it's been a challenge, and that's a new kind of identity. And being seen in that way is strange too. I guess that's that's a a really interesting aspect how how people see you and where that meshes with how you see yourself and where it doesn't mesh at mm. all and where it feels like a distortion or a negation or an erasure and then what you do with those feelings of of being obliterated or annihilated because you know someone or maybe everyone fails to see something that you think you really are or that you feel strongly you are, um, you know, so what do you do then? 
when when people don't see you, you know. And so I think that is where writing has played such a valuable role for so many people. Um, we're, we're a quick-moving world, and we don't always take time or invest the energy to see other people. And sometimes they don't want to be seen, right, for reasons of self-protection or what have you. And so we, so we don't see them. So we missee them. We misperceive them, and we envision them in ways that are incorrect. And, um, and, and writing can be a way of talking back to that. And it can also be a way of remembering that we are also culprits in that practice, you know, that we also inevitably fail to see people or misperceive them. And, and we miswrite them. We miswrite other people's identities without necessarily even meaning to. I know that some people do so perniciously and deliberately, uh, but, but many of us, you know, just do so sort of inevitably as a feature of our own uh, blindness and ignorance that we can't help. You know, we, all we can do is try uh, to learn more and to see better um, and, and remember how we have been unseen or misread Mm. Mm -hmm. I would really love it if you might share some of your work with us okay sure um, I will read a short essay I guess it's a lyric essay and um, that's, that's all it's true and it's called Grip and it comes from the collection Island of Bones Over the crib in the tiny apartment, there hung a bullet-holed paper target, the size and dark shape of a man, its heart zone, head zone, perforated where my aim had torn through. Thirty-six little rips, no strays, centered on spots that would make a man die. Beginner's luck, said the guys at the shooting range at first. Little lady, they'd said until the silhouette slid back and farther back. They had cleared their throats, fallen silent. A bad neighborhood, an infant child, a Ruger GP 357 with speed loader. It's not as morbid as it sounds, a target pinned above a crib. The place was small, the walls already plastered full with paintings, sketches, pretty leaves, hand-illuminated psychedelic broadsides of poems by my friends. I masking-taped my paper massacre to the only empty space, a door I'd closed to form a wall. When my stepfather got out of prison, he tracked my mother down. He found the city where she'd moved. He broke a basement window and crawled in. She never saw his car halfway up the dark block, stuffed behind a bush. My mother lived. She wouldn't say what happened in the house that night. Cops came, that's what I know. Silent, she hung a screen between that scene and me. It's what a mother does. She lived, as lived the violence of our years with him, knifed into us like scrimshaw cut in living bone. Carved but alive, we learned to hold our breath, dive deep, bare our teeth to what fed us. 
When I was 21, my son slept under the outline of what I could do, a death I could hold in my hands. At the time, I'd have denied its locale any meaning, called its placement coincidence, pointing to walls crowded with other kinds of dreams. But that dark, torn thing did hang there, its lower edge obscured behind the wooden slats, the flannel duck, the stuffed white bear. It hung there like a promise, like a headboard, like a no, like a terrible poem, like these lines I will never show you, shielding you from the fear I carry, like a sort of oath I swore over your quiet sleep. Mm. Gosh, I really love that piece. <laughs> Thank you. I do. I really love that piece. Thank you. It means a lot to me. I'm curious the best advice you've ever received. Uh, the best advice I've ever received was, <laughs> it was actually in a, <laughs> this is awful. It, it was actually in a book of um, marital advice. And I don't even remember, I wasn't particularly seeking marital advice. I don't know why I was looking at this book. I was married at that time. I don't even know how I came across it. But it was like little collections of, you know, I don't know, like chicken soup for the married soul. But it wasn't that, you know, it was just some book. And um, it was different people offering their best marital advice. And one, one piece of advice struck me like a gong being struck. And it just resonated into everything. And it was, um, don't take it personally. Mm. And... Uh, and then and the respondent uh, asked, what? Don't take what personally? And um, then the, advisee, the advisor said, uh, anything. Don't take anything personally. And the context was within marriage, you know. If, if, but to me, it made just about perfect sense uh, regarding every area of life, whether, you know, it's professional or familial or... You know, friendship, um, uh, to me, that's uh, extremely helpful. People are acting out their own peculiar dramas, and uh, pretty much nothing is about me, and that's helpful. Mm. It's helpful to know. You know, you can control your own um, behavior to some extent and not even always, right? Or, or sometimes we're obscure to ourselves. Our, our motivations are so deep or our fears are so strange to us that we can't even admit or acknowledge them. And, um, but in any case, we definitely can't control other people. If we can control anyone, it's ourselves. And so life is this interesting process of trying to get clearer and clearer about what your own shit is and um you know being being transparent and being clear and being honest with yourself first um and then with others and and realizing that they're doing their best and that nothing they do is personal about you pretty much i mean obviously you know if you do if you do something clearly negative to someone and they respond to you. They are responding personally to you because you did that thing. Right. I mean, right. I get that. I'm not uh, oversimplifying, but in general, 
things aren't personal. And, and this, in terms of higher ed and the academic world, this is so helpful. And in publishing, too. When people talk about fit, I think when you're a young writer or a young academic, you don't quite believe in the concept of fit, right? They say, oh, this person wasn't just a good fit. And it's true that sometimes that has been used perniciously to maintain the status quo rather than um, engaging a more diverse body of uh, employees or writers and so on. So it can it can be used negatively. But on the whole, you know, you you interview three people and you pick the one who is the best fit for your curricular needs and, you know, the kinds of students that will be taught and blah, blah, blah. And it really is so impersonal. But when, at least when I was young, it was very difficult to see it that way. You know, you see it as some deficiency in yourself or some, some, um, you know, horrible bias or prejudice on the part of the, <laughs> the, the institution or the, or the journal that rejected you. Right. Mm-hmm. But, um, I don't know. I think uh, as you as you sort of practice detachment or try to try to sort of see. Oh wow, this is getting interesting. Maybe um, so. Sort of try to see your your ego functioning uh, in interactions with other entities. Um, it, it all becomes a great deal easier to go, oh, that's not personal. Oh, this is, you know, this is just uh, structural or this is, and it, it just, it all becomes a, a great deal easier. And, and in fact, for me, it's liberated more energy to work against or fight against um, systems or structures that seem unjust um, because, I, because it's not about me in a way. You know what I mean? Uh, it's just mm-hmm. it's just about this huge uh, lumbering beast of some system that wants to maintain its own status quo and needs to be challenged and needs to be refuted, blah blah blah. But you know, it's not me joy that's at stake in that. Mm. I don't know. That could be an entire ramble that you end up cutting. No, <laughs> no, I think that's really um, well because I think that's also really important for us to remember. You said, you know, you mentioned as writers, it's important for us to remember, and so whether it's um, a rejection letter from a journal or a publication, or whether it is, um, you know, a uh, a negative blog comment or a book review, there are ways that remembering that it's not personal and not taking something personal can be really, I think, reflective for us um, to say, okay, you know, this is, you know, not about me. This is not about, you know, it may be that this magazine had 50 essays about this topic submitted and that's why that, you know, mine just didn't make the cut. But I think that's also helpful to remember as we um, really sort of do our own reflecting on identity and awareness and our work because that level of um, sort of non-attachment, I think, um, taking it one step past, you know, that just removing ourselves, but that level of non-attachment about not putting a depth grip on something and that freeing us to focus on it even more 
Does that make sense? Yeah, that's a really nice way of putting it. Uh, yeah, when you don't have that desperate death grip on something, when you stop wanting or desiring uh, something, it does enable you to actually work and focus more clearly. And it seems to result in fairly good outcomes. I don't, I don't know. I don't want to speak over hastily, but um, somehow like removing, removing an excessive sense of self or an excessively needy sense of desire from almost any process can clarify the process and lead to a, a better result um, in, in a way that's so helpful and that tends to minimize conflict. Um, at least, I don't know, maybe that's just me reflecting on a year of uh, being an administrator. (laughs) But when I, when I write, especially when I write about really volatile or painful or inflammatory material, I try to approach it from as cool and neutral a stance as I can and uh, to be very sort of calm and objective about writing it you know the the way that I present it and and the language that I choose um, so that it sort of stands alone and simple on the page and for me that that feels like a more true Um, way to let it be in the world and to let readers um, approach it and and come to it and engage with it rather than um, rather than with a very rather than trying to write with a very self-invested approach or with a with a with a specific desire with a specific desire or specific agenda um, Although, I mean, you know, and to backtrack, of course, we all have those uh, all the time. But it seems to me that approaching most things in a cool and neutral and compassionate and simple way um, results in better work, whether that's work with a group of people trying to achieve something or work all alone with a notebook trying to achieve something. Mm. Absolutely. <laughs> I just am like I have a million things flying through my head about that and at the same time I'm just like oh yeah yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> well and to return to the idea of trauma I think people who've been traumatized or who have been violated seek so hard um, within themselves psychologically for some kind of agency um, you know, to say, here's why it happened to me, right? Mm, mm-hmm. Especially um, people who were traumatized or violated in childhood when they didn't, they weren't able to really exert very much control. Um, and, and this is something that I experienced. You look for some kind of reason, something about you that maybe caused people to not love you or caused people to willfully hurt you. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, you can get very invested in 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 the in the hurt self, right? Mm-hmm. And um, I think 
gently and gradually and slowly moving away from that has been such a relief uh, in my in my own experience. And all, always, though difficult, I mean, it's been really difficult, um, but I'm always grateful for the measure of vision that happens with each move in that in that direction. And one of the things I was thinking as you were talking about approaching things with a sense of calm is how much that comes through. Um, for me, especially in your nonfiction work, um, I have been delightfully rereading the truth book. Um, and uh, I... I this probably sounds absurd, but I have been um, reading it at night before bed, <laughs> which, um, given the subject matter and some of the material in it, might seem really strange, and and um, might, and in fact, um, someone said to me, "Well, what are you reading these days?" And I said, "Well, you know, my nightly reading is is the Truth Book," and. Um, when I explained really more about the book, um, I got this very quizzical look, like, how are you reading that before bed? Why are you not having nightmares? Um, but that sense of calm comes through in your writing. That's where I'm going with this. Um, because there is a way to talk about things that is not the, um, the raw shock of experience, um, there are ways to talk about trauma that do not rely even subconsciously on um, shocking the reader or putting them in a place of discomfort or awe. Um, but there are ways that trauma and um, really intense things can be t- can be written about and shared um, with a sense of calm and with that sense of um, I think there is a, a very clear inner strength that comes through in your work. And um, it allows someone like me, a reader coming to this story, to experience that trauma and those emotions and those stories and those memories without the um without experiencing trauma oh very good <laughs> <laughs> i mean uh that's great i mean the last thing that i would want to do would be to traumatize anyone even indirectly uh, although i do think it's important for um for the brutal stories to be told mm-hmm. you know? so yeah yeah and and to backtrack, I, I don't mind making readers uncomfortable. Um, I think that uh, the discomfort can be good, like right? Cognitive dissonance can produce mm-hmm. leaps of um, learning and growth. Uh, but I really don't like sensationalizing things. Um, and so I, I definitely don't want to sensationalize any of the aspects of my own experience that would have lent themselves to that. Um, so, I, you know, I think sometimes that, 
I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if it even does traumatize people anymore because it's so ubiquitous. Right. I think there's also that. But at the same time, you know, I think about um, the difference, you know, and maybe this is an unfair comparison given the difference in, in format and in media. But I think about um, reading a memoir about a, a, a person who's experienced trauma and like watching an episode of Law and Order SVU, right? Or, (laughs) you know, like the different ways of experiencing that same story. Um, And I think sensationalizing is the word that I think I was looking for Mm. in that, in the way that the story can be told, you know, uh, without quite such neon light flair. But really... um, you know, this is the story, this is my experience, and this is, you know, this is what happened, but this is really about what I learned and and what I remember and what I, you know, what I come out of this experience carrying with me. Yeah, and and what was surprisingly beautiful within that, or what was funny, Mm. you know, like the whole spectrum Mm -hmm. of, of experience, just because something was awful and rotten uh, that doesn't mean there weren't moments right of of loveliness or of um love of human connection um and i was so glad when the university of nebraska press um issued the book in paperback and put the little plant on the cover um for me that's probably the core of the book that little plant that my brother wanted to save that he had grown from a seed mm-hmm. and um and, and so, so unspeakably tender and kind of heartbreaking that he was not able to save it. And it's just a small thing, but most people can relate to, you know, growing a little plant. Um, it's, that's certainly not sensational or gaudy. Yeah. Yeah. So the little human moments, I think, are, mm, I don't know, what, what, what connect all of us to, to literature. Mm. I'd love to give you a chance to share some of your own wisdom about writing and teaching and sharing hard stories and being socially aware um, directly with listeners. I love this question and it's so generous, but I am sitting here laughing (laughs) because like the notion of sharing my wisdom just like kind of cracks me up and makes me feel awkward and tongue tied. I really have like no, if I, if I start to say, here's my wisdom, I'll just crack myself up. <laughs> but I love the idea of like, you know, talking to people uh, and um, I just, you know, you, you, you told me that this question was coming and I thought, oh no, um, I don't know how to approach this at all. But uh, so... Um, maybe I could just talk a little bit about writing. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. (laughs) So here's something for people who want to write, and I imagine that a a lot of you who are listening are interested in writing as well as in reading. Um, There's a really great piece by Brenda Miller on courage and creative nonfiction. And it's in a, an anthology called Bending Genre from Bloomsbury. 
And it's on my mind because I'm going to be teaching it next week in a three-week intensive summer course for graduate students on creative nonfiction. And this is a, this is an interesting thing, courage or bravery in creative nonfiction, like the courage of disclosing. Because you get this a lot when you give a reading, like people are like, oh, that's so brave, or oh, it took so much courage to say that. And Brenda Miller really goes in and takes that idea apart. And, and what she says in that essay has been very true for me, um, which is that approaching difficult or painful or volatile or explosive or inflammatory personal material when when you're doing that when you're writing about it you don't necessarily feel brave or intrepid at all you're thinking about form and you're thinking about technique and you're thinking about strategy what you're thinking about is art and making a shape, uh, a pleasing shape, maybe a beautiful shape, but maybe you're not into beauty. Maybe you're into deliberate, you know, ugliness of form or whatever. But you're, you're, you're crafting this aesthetic object out of a welter of material, stuff that really happened, um, and maybe stuff that was painful and whatnot. But the painfulness is just not important to you at that moment. You're like an artist. You're like an artist with clay or you're like an artist with paint. And your medium is language, the language that you write in. And you're, you're trying to create something that has never been made before. And that is what preoccupies you, the, the excitement and the challenge and the beauty of that process, the product, again, may not be what, what you would think of as beautiful because maybe that's not your goal, but the beauty of that process, of that immersion and, you know, that what we call the flow state and stuff like that now, um, that is what makes the pursuit of any art, I think, so compelling and so addictive and so liberating and so rewarding. And when you're in the midst of that, bravery and courage, it all becomes irrelevant. You're taking risks because you love to leap. You love that momentary feeling of flight. Joy, it has been so great to have you on the show today. Um, I am just so thankful that you said yes and that we could carve out this time together. Oh, thank you. It's been really fun. Great questions and really interesting. If listeners want to learn more about you and your work, they can find you at your website, joycastro.com. And also your collection, How Winter Began, is coming out from University of Nebraska Press on October 1st. You are listening to In Her Room. Women Writers on Life, Craft, and Changing the World. I'm your host, Sarah Blackthorne. I'm so glad you're a part of the In Her Room community. Without listeners like you, the show would not be possible. On our website, in-her-room.com, you'll find show notes, learn how to work with me, and have an opportunity to contribute financially to keep In Her Room on the air.
next week on In Her Room, we'll talk with essayist, self-proclaimed cat lady, and founder of Cactus Heart Press, Sarah Rauch. I'm Sarah Blackthorne. Let's tell our stories together.